and so it wasn't obvious what you, you did in those days to get into the wine trade. Um, you know, they say the way to make a small fortune in the wine trade is start with a large one, but we didn't have that either. So. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Law Blacks one-to-one podcast. My name's Chris Allen and I'm the managing partner of Black Solicitors. We are a law firm based in Leeds, West Yorkshire. I've worked in West Yorkshire for over 27 years. During that time, I've met plenty of interesting people in both the business world and the sports world. I'm looking forward to catching up with some more of those people shortly to share with you their stories, anecdotes and even possibly, particularly today, advice. I hope you'll find the interviews interesting, engaging and educational. If you enjoy the podcast, then please give it a positive review and tell all your friends. And if you don't enjoy it, keep that to yourself. This podcast today is a real treat as I'm going to be speaking to a good friend of mine and wine merchant, Andrew Firth. Andrew runs his wine business from his premises in North Yorkshire and is here today to give us an insight into the life of a wine merchant in this day and age and how how the devil do you choose a good wine when you're out and about. So, uh, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Great to be here. Lovely to see you and lovely to see your wines, I might add. (laughs) Thought so. (laughs) Look how chirpy we all are. (laughs) Um, Less chirpy, of course. It's May 2021. We've just had the most incredible, um, and I use that word not lightly, uh, last 15 months. Um, Lockdown's coming to an end. Businesses are reopening, restaurants are reopening to some degree. Just give me a, an overview on how the wine industry has been affected over the last 15 months. Well, quite significantly, but it's in different sort of patches. When it started, we'd, we were, we'd sort of you know, prepared for Brexit and things like that. Um, but then, you know, we, normally the summer's a good, a good time for us. Uh, my daughter got married in January. There was hey-ho, selling lots of wine. Um, we were drinking lots of wine at the party then in february we went to seville to go and see sherry producers and some wine people and then march woof we're closed we're shut down so all the restaurants closed uh, we've got a lot of stock hanging around the place uh, and no no customers 80 percent of our business is hotels and restaurants uh, or, or probably a bit more and then private customers so so we had a dilemma we uh, we had no customers so thankfully the furlough scheme kicked in um, we got our money from our local council and plodded on so it was me and a car um and i went out delivering luckily people came out the woodwork because people couldn't go to shops and, and, and buy the booze very easily so i did lots of deliveries very early days i'd go out delivering and i actually got stopped twice by the police um but because i was an important essential worker being in the wine trade i was let off but the first time i was caught was up at the top of Sutton bank and the guy was fine he said he said, you wouldn't believe the people are out. There was a lady there in a big ranger over. had come out from Leeds with the kids. Um, and she told the policeman she was there to look at the little lambs in the field, uh, which she didn't think was a very good excuse. <laughs> she was returned and I was sent on my way. Uh, so it was a long haul. Um, you know, it was, it was quite difficult. Obviously, in most people's businesses, it's cash flow and wages are a big part of it. But just the, but just the general cash flow and paying your suppliers and and those sorts of things. So, you know, tough. You know, we suddenly uh, ground to a halt for three months. But did you pick up new customers during that time? Or were you, was it your regular sort of individuals who no, know we, you? Or We did you know? pick up new people. There was, you know, people around and about in in the local villages and towns so, uh, close to, to us in North Yorkshire who suddenly came out of the woodwork and said, help, I need some booze. Um, 
And the great thing uh, that restaurants is our lifeblood, but they do take a few weeks to pay. Uh, and the private customers were paying immediately. You know, you'd sort of, you deliver it and half an hour later, you check your bank account, boom, there it is. So that was very nice. Cash flow was much improved. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So and, and, and did you use, I mean, obviously you use social media. There's a Firth & Co. Twitter account, etc. Yeah. Did you did you get orders through different platforms, through the website, yeah. etc.? Yeah, we tried to put lots of things up on Twitter. Um, you know, I know you, uh, you look at some of the nonsense I've put up, Chris, and... Uh, <laughs> The Twitter one is sort of me, really, saying all sorts of useless things. And then the Instagram, my daughter does, and she does that a bit more commercially. So we've probably got a little bit more through the Instagram. Um, and then, obviously, you know, people just phoning up and, and emailing. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was very helpful and much needed. But it was, it was busy and buoyant, and also the weather was good. Um, people were thirsty. So, it, you know, that side, it was, it was quite good. A lot of the people still buying, but, but quite a few have drifted back to the... Aldi's and Lidl's and Asda's, etc. Which is an ongoing challenge and has been presumably throughout your entire career. Yes, that's why we've geared ourselves up really to be, we sell to hotels and restaurants and to, what you, not bespoke, but sort of slightly wealthier private customers who are looking for a bit of service and a bit of advice and etc, etc. Okay, so take me back in time. Wine merchant, to me, you know, bear in mind I spend a lot of time with solicitors and accountants. Sounds very exotic. Take me back in time and tell me how a young Andrew Firth got excited about being a wine merchant. Well, it seemed more exotic than what my father... My father was, ran a family business in Hunslet, um, uh, John Blackburn's Printers uh, and Regina Music, which always made me giggle when I was a kid. Um, and, 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 and that was sort of the destiny, that I would go into the family business uh, of printing, uh, which is a lovely business, and Hunslet's a lovely part of the world. But... Uh, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And my father got into wine as an, as an interest. And so I remember he brought these wines home and I tasted these wines as a young kid, I don't know, 11, 12 years old. I was fascinated by the labels. I loved the information that was on the labels and, and to try and decipher that. And even more than that, I liked the taste. And I remember, you know, that feeling of a lovely warm, the warming feeling of having a red wine, you know, and it just made me think, this sounds better than printing. <laughs> so... And I told dad and mum and what to do. And, they, and so it wasn't obvious what you, you did in those days to get into the wine trade. Um, you know, they say the way to make a small fortune in the wine trade is start with a large one. But we didn't have that either. So there was a wine shop in, in Weatherby called uh, uh, Chenel and Armstrong, or the posh people called it Chanel and Armstrong. Um, and we went in there and the manager said he didn't know, but probably go to catering college. So that's what I did. I went to Thomas Danby uh, in Leeds, which was the... Uh, a new college when I went there in 1978. I see now it's been knocked down. Um, it was brand new, state of the art. And so I did hotel management there for three years, uh, thinking this would take me into the wine trade. Um, we did very little about wine in it, but we did a lot about hotels and restaurants. And with it being a sandwich course, spent a year out working in various different places. Um, the Bankfield Hotel in Bingley, which is near to you. And then the CGB headquarters in Harrogate, which I'd never heard of CGB when I went there, but that was quite interesting. So industrial catering, still not much wine thing. But then, but when I finished, I got a job in London as a minibar waiter at the Churchill Hotel. Um, so that was my first touch onto booze, I suppose. This podcast is, needless to say, sponsored by Black Solicitors. 
Blacks is a law firm based in Leeds and we provide a range of commercial, property and private client services to clients throughout the United Kingdom. Obviously, I'd love you to enjoy this podcast and then use our services on any legal issues you have going forward. If you visit lawblacks.com, you'll see the kind words that existing clients have had to say about the services we provide. Now, back to the podcast. And, and you see, when I think of the wine industry, it's almost overwhelming. You know, I can't, I can't quite fathom the size of it. How, how do you become a master of all these wines? You know, wherever you see them, be it in a restaurant, be it in a, in, in a supermarket. How, how, do you, how do you manage that? How do you get control of what is going on in there? Yeah, well, it's an ever-evolving thing. I mean, when you start in the wine trade, you do these courses there was three in the old days a wine and spirit education trust certificate then the higher certificate and then the diploma and then there was the institute of masters of wine which is formed in the 1950s and so you so the first masters of wine were in 1953 or 54 or something but those kind of guys had to learn about france germany spain and italy and possibly yugoslavia that was it uh, now the masters of wine have to learn about croatia brazil peru chile etc but the fundamentals are the same, and that's the bit that you learn early d- doors. There's a certain number of grapes. There's there's lots of different grapes, but there's there's five or six of each colour that are the key ones. So learn about those. Then certain ones grow better in different areas, and it's to do with the climate. So the cooler the climate, certain types of grapes. So for example, Sauvignon Blanc works quite well in cooler climate, and Chardonnay will work in a warmer climate. And for the reds, you get Syrah, or in Australia they call it Shiraz. Uh, That's in a nice hot climate. Um, And Pinot Noir is a lighter skin of wine that probably suits better a cooler climate. But you can get that. So if you've got those basics, and then there's the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, there's a slightly different style in the Southern Hemisphere because they can irrigate the vines more. Uh, lots of the traditional areas of France you can't irrigate, which means water. Uh, and so y- 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 you go to Chile and places like that, they've got little hose pipes all around the vineyards where they, uh, they irrigate them, got boatloads of sunshine, boatloads of water. So you get a fuller, a fuller grape. And if you get the basic thing, I remember the Holston beer ad turns all the alcohol into, that turns all the sugar into alcohol. Yeah. Uh, so the same thing happens in in wine so if you've got a grape that's got a lot of sugar in it you've got a lot of potential alcohol so that would make a bigger wine but you're not going to get a very sunny grape in Nantes in the Loire Valley which is where Muscadet is but you are down in in north of, of, of Cape Town and places like that so so you're going to get richer wines which have got more potential alcohol and if you don't ferment it without boring you but if you don't ferment it all out you, you get left a residual sugar which makes it a sweeter wine so right. it's sort of a little bit of geography. You look at the label like I did when I was a 12-year-old or whatever, you know, and if it's from a certain part of the world, which you know with your geography that it's a warmer sunshine, there's potential for that wine to have more, uh, more, uh, more sugar and more body to it. Uh, but, uh, but with global warming, now they're trying to temper them down because some wines that used to be 12.5 degrees are now 14.5 degrees. And, it, and is the... Are there as many vineyards around the world as there's ever been, or, or is more. Uh, I, I, there is more? Is there? Yeah, the uh, our friends in China are going for it. Uh, they've uh, they've grown vines over there quite some time, but they're really uh, they're seriously going into it. 
so you've got new markets opening up you know there's so china's got a lot of vineyards and it's growing all the time india has has more and more uh brazil has some but it's really not the right temperature down there um the french regions uh you know have expanded so yeah there's more vineyards than ever and and i have this sort of romantic image of um you know, a local vineyard being owned by one family and, all you know, they're roping all the locals to get get the grapes every year. Is that the way it is or is that sort You've of... You've seen that film, Chris. Yeah, we? that's right. We've all seen the <laughs> good film. Year. We've all seen a good year. Um, um, yeah, some of that. There's it's some di- of that still. Yeah, it's different areas. I mean, if you take France, which is easier to understand, you go to Burgundy uh, and the Napoleonic um, inheritance laws, which would excite you being a lawyer, is that it has to pass down through all of the families. So you end up with these these little family domains getting smaller and smaller uh, because cousin in Paris has to have a bit of it and somebody else. So those are very small, family-owned, and the same in some areas of of the south of France, Ladoc, in Languedoc and in the Loire Valley. You go to Bordeaux, and it started like that, but if you go along the Medoc, which uh, the Route de Medoc, which is the the best vineyards where Chateau Latour and Chateau Margaux and things are, those are all owned by big corporations, AXA Insurance and um, LVMH, and, you know, it's big business now. Yeah. Um, so the smaller growers are based in saint emile but, but the cost of vineyards is high. And, um, you know, it used to be in this country, it was Lord somebody or other, uh, uh, you know, had a big estate in Sussex or Hampshire and decided he wanted to grow a few vines as, as a bit of a hobby. But even you know bigger businesses have now come into that, and you've got venture capital and, and things. So both you know all all rub along beside each other really. And the and the biggest threat to sort of the wine industry, other than sort of some terrible disease that that, that kills the grapes, is it is it other drinks? I mean, we've got this trend. I don't suppose the cider explosion ten years ago, or whatever, has a huge effect. But the the gin. Explosion yeah. has that had an effect? Yes, gin has, and also people living healthier lives. There was, if you look at France, you know the generation uh, before us, our sort of father's generation, they all they all drank wine at lunch and dinner and everything. So their younger generation, our sort of generation, uh, they grew up not really wanting to drink wine. They'd rather drink Coca Cola and gin and tonics and things like that. Um, I don't know whether it's the same thing happening here, but there is certainly less wine being drunk amongst younger people. I think. Because uh, they are going for gins and vodkas and and rums and things like that. Mm. So, it's, I mean, I've been in the wine trade now for 38 years, and the last couple of years have been the first two years that there's been a decline in in consumption of wine. All those years before, it's it's gone up. Mm. Well, but interesting what the next 12 months brings, isn't it? If yeah. We're, if we're going to have a roaring 20s uh, kickback, um, I think people are getting ready to go. I mean, I think there's I think there's challenges in the wine trade. You know, that because you said right at the beginning, the issue is people understanding what the heck it is. And the beer industry have, appro- uh, have addressed that quite well with their craft beers. And they've added a bit of trendiness and an interest there and and giving a bit more information about it. And, and not just describing it as bitter and mild or something. It's got quirky names. And so, so they've sort of modernised it. There's a little bit of that happening in the wine business with a thing called natural wines. Uh, which is low intervention, so not using chemicals in vineyards, not using much sulphur, da 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 So that's getting quite trendy because they have trendy labels on and things. The wines can be quite expensive because the uh, uh, the production costs are more um, and, and you've got the risk of things going wrong. 
Um, but so those kind of things uh, are happening. You mentioned cider. I mean, I'm just we're selling a bit of cider. Um, there's some. I, I think it's one of the most exciting things in in England is English cider from these traditional. Um, I was going to say vineyards from orchards, and there's a guy called Tom Oliver we buy quite a bit of, um, who is also the road manager for the Proclaimers uh, oh. <laughs> on, his, uh, on his other he'll job. But he's he'll a, have a few stories. Won't yeah, he? but he's a master master cider man. Yeah, so it's worth having a look at. Yeah, interesting. So, how does a wine merchant go about buying wine? Again, I have this romantic image of you piling over to France most summers, and you know, there's a stop off on the way to Italy, and then we'll just belt round to Spain on the way home. Yeah. How, was, how do you go about buying, and how do you you know, if you were recommending six bottles of fine wine to me, how, how do you go about picking those? Well, on the buying side of it, it was traditionally you get into your car uh, and you go to the vineyards. And I've done lots of that. And in many ways, that's the best bit. Uh, for many years, I took my wife uh, until she until she got sick of it. Uh, because it sounds very glamorous, but what happens is that you... You make four appointments, four or five appointments a day, maybe. You make sure you've got an appointment where there's a lunch possibility. Uh, and you get there at 9.30 in the morning and you go into their cellar and taste. you taste 20 wines from tanks that aren't even finished. And then the thing that put her off was all the spitting. So there's the spitting. Um, and you, you often sort of say, where, do you, uh, uh, where can I spit this thing? On the floor. Um, uh, the, the, uh, there's a great word for a, uh, for a spittoon in French they use called crushwa, which I always think is a, a great, a, a great concept. So there's, it's fun, but it's quite hard work, and you'd make those appointments. But it's very important to have good relationships with people. Make sure that their, uh, their wines are up to standard. Find new ones. If you go to restaurants, you always ask the sommelier or proprietor what's good in the area. Oh, this guy's good, and so you found them like that. It was hard work, interesting, you know, enjoyable. You did a week of it. I used to go in February. Um, and still do it, but not as much, because sadly you can do so much on the internet. Mm. You know, whereas you would drive around the villages of Champagne looking for the best small producer, you can put into Google "best small grower in Champagne," boom, and up comes a load of names. Mm. Uh, so now you would still go and visit them, but you can then Google it, you find them, uh, contact them because the contact details are there. Can you send me a sample? I sell wine to hotels and restaurants in the north of England. Um, fine, they'll send me the samples. So um, they actually, they just send you the samples and you sit there doing the same routine? Yeah. And, and, how, then, and how long did it take you to become proficient at tasting wines and knowing what's good and what's bad? Because again, I'd probably say, um, I'm unconvinced after 53 years, I'm any better than I was when I started. I think it takes a bit of time, but not that much. The thing is, you've got to concentrate. You know, you just got to think about it, you know, taste it. There's all the swirling and sniffing. Everybody loves that messing around. Um, but you know you can pick up different things in your on your palate. I used to smoke. I stopped about fifteen years ago. And I remember going to lots of uh, of wineries, and you'd sort of halfway through the tasting, the, the proprietor said, "Do you want to go for a cigarette?" So we'd go outside and have a fag, and then we'd come back and finish it off. And then I stopped smoking, and my palate changed, you know, dramatically. Suddenly the flavours were whole different and fruity. But I could manage when I was a smoker because it was like I don't know. It was muffled, and it wasn't as muffled anymore. Um, so, if you concentrate, people often say, "I know what I like," and they go for, and they go for uh, names that they know. It's worth experimenting and finding things, um, and you know, just you know, think about it and try and remember flavors um, and look at the label. So it's uh, 
It's building up your knowledge, really, I suppose. And how about Making when you have to break the news to the wine producer that you don't think much of his latest wine? Is that a... I mean, is this an industry where you tell them straight? I yeah. don't think much of that. In a Yorkshire wine merchant. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, <laughs> the, yes, well, as you get older, you do. When you're younger, you're dead. Cause, you know. So I remember there was uh, about 20 years ago, we were looking for an Australian agency, and I come across this chap um, uh, called Jim Urban, who's a, who's a good friend and he's a great guy, master of the Barossa. And, and he'd worked for all the big businesses and he set up his own thing. And he was, you know, in his early 70s then. And he sent me the wines over, and I loved the wines, but he was you know, a revered character. I thought the wines were great, but I thought the labels were crap. And I thought, what do I do? Because I thought, I'm going to struggle to sell these with these labels. So I took a deep breath, and, uh, and I said, love the wines, Jim. Not so sure about the labels. I don't think they work. He said, thanks for saying that, Andrew, because we're actually looking at it now, and we're going to change it. It's good of you to say, because uh, it's... It, it's made me realise it's what we should do. So that kind of experience gives you the confidence to go on. But it's a bit like, it would be like taking a pint of beer back in Yorkshire. If you go to the bar and say, I don't think it's right, they'll change it straight away. Try that in London. Um, they go, everybody else is drinking it. <laughs> Get out. So it, Yeah, when's you know, your train back north? Yeah, yeah. you've got to choose your, you've yeah. got to choose the person right. But yes, don't buy it if you don't like it. Right. Okay. Well, if you don't like let, it. Let, let's put it to the test then. So what have you brought? You've brought a few bottles here. It's a bit early, <laughs> pre-lunch this, folks. But uh, what, what are you going to um, well, I, get I, us to I, test? I, just, I mean, as you said earlier, there's millions of different wines. So I thought I'll just bring you some things that are, that, are, that are of the moment, a bit of trends. So the first one is a sparkling wine. So a lot of people uh, drink Prosecco. I'm holding the bottle. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, grab the bottle. Um, but a lot of people are drinking uh, Prosecco and obviously Champagne. It's popular, but, but sales are going down a little bit. But without boring you too much, the way you make a sparkling wine is you've got to get some gas into the wine. So you make a wine, then add the gas. But Champagne, the gas is added by a second fermentation in the bottle, which was called the method Champenoise. That's the traditional method. Uh, so it, the second fermentation takes place in the bottle, and the byproduct of that is CO2. Uh, there's all, the other byproduct is sediment, so you have to try and get the sediment out of the bottle, which is part of the process, because eventually they uh, twirl the bottles until the sediment goes to the neck, freeze the neck, and then, and then some guy gets the brilliant job of firing this ice pellet out of the top of a bottle all day long, which uh, I've always thought would be quite a good job. Uh, or the other method is called a Charmat method, which is where you make a wine and then you inject it with gas in a big tank or a tank method. So Prosecco is made by the latter, the Charmat met method and Champagne by Method Champenoise. So the Method Champenoise or Method Traditionnel, as the uh, Champagne lawyers have said, you can't call it Champenoise. Um, and so, so if it's made by that method, it's better. The classic one that's made like that is Carver. Now, the Millennium put a lot of people off Carver because Morrisons were selling it for whatever price they were and then they couldn't sell it and all the rest of it. But Carver is a really good product. It comes from Spain. It's made by the Method Traditionnel and gaining popularity. But one of the great products is, is Cremant of France. So Cremant, uh, it covers all the different winemaking regions of France. So uh, you get Cremant de Bourgogne, Cremant de Bordeaux, Cremant de Loire, Cremant de Limoux, etc. So I brought you a Cremant de Bourgogne. Lovely. Um, it's got a fancy gold foil. Yes, and, and, uh, it looks good. It's a vintage made from... So Champagne is made from Chardonnay and Pinot Noir with a little bit of Pinot Meunier. Uh, and this is made from a Chardonnay and Pinot Bianco. And it's made from a, 
a guy in Burgundy that we buy uh, his wines from, and I think it's extremely good. And it, we're certainly seeing an increase in sales. So where a champagne sold at 25 quid a bottle, I know you can get it cheaper, but it's sort of 25 quid. This is, a, a Cremon is about 15 pounds. Again, you can get some cheaper, but it's, you know, it, it's a bit less expensive than champagne. It's quite interesting. You go all the different regions. So I think Cremon is an interesting thing. So I brought you that to have a, a taste of. Well, keep, keep, keep opening it as we're talking. Okay. Um, I don't think there's any harm in that. No, we'll do that. So uh, the, uh, I mean, the thing in the hotel and restaurant business we do quite a bit of over the years is staff training. And one of the things that you always do uh, is teach people how to open a bottle of champagne. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it goes wrong so you look a complete buffoon but uh basically you take the cage you take the foil off the top where the cage is um exposes the the little wire put your thumb on the top because uh there's a lot of gas in here whenever you go to champagne they say there's a, the same amount of gas in a bottle of champagne as there is in a london uh, bus tire whether that's true or not it's been said many no, times but you don't want it in your eye do you you don't want it in your eye you don't want it so keep eye. it pointing away from yeah. uh your lawyer um <laughs> And and then you hold hold the cork firmly, and then you twist the bottle, not the cork, and hopefully we get a sort of a puff like that. Um, and then we'll pour a glass for you, Chris. Thank um, you very much. So there's a nice fizz, bubbles, mousse, which is the foamy stuff. Uh, pass that across to you there. Um, so um, so that's uh, okay. This is the Cremant de Bourgogne 2018 vintage, which is really nice. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's an interesting trend. In a years ago, Cremor was a style of champagne, um, and so the, uh, the Champenois are very litigious. There was a perfume company that called a perfume champagne. Boom, straight onto that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think as part of their litigiousness, if that's a word, they've allowed Cremor, even though it was a champagne uh, style, uh, to be used. It, it's always been used, Cremor, but there was no arguing. So. It was meant for a slightly lower gas uh, and a creamier style. Right. That's the name. Well, cheers. Oh, yep. Excuse me. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Enjoy. Well, this is rapidly becoming my favourite podcast in the entire <laughs> series. So you'll see um, on bottles of fizz and things it says brut, and uh, and brut means dry. Right. Um, and you'll see on prosecco sometimes they say uh, extra dry which is not as dry as dry. So it gets very confusing. So would you drink this with a meal or is this the your, your friends have rocked up to your house and you, this is what you give them when they first arrive? Yes. Which both. seems to be the trend of... Both. I think it's it's nice, yeah. So people always love a glass of fizz. Mm. And uh, it's a good thing to... You know, it's not too acidic. It's a right rounded star. It's very easy to drink. Uh, yeah, it gets the party going. And then you can drink it with... Food. I used to work for Louis Rodre Champagne years ago, and then we did a, a lunch in London for a load of restaurateurs, and we and we served this Louis Rodre. Um, it was at Overton's, I think, which is a fish restaurant, and we served it with turbot. It was absolutely delicious. So it goes really well with those kind of things. And would you you personally keep drinking that all evening, or do, do you no. like to mix your wines up as you go through a meal? Yes, I. Right. You know, uh, I normally have a glass or two of fizz, um, and and then go on to the white wine and. A rush to the main event of the red wine, really. So. <laughs> and that's the way you see it from your perspective. Yeah, so you know, have a bit of everything. Now, you certainly don't need to open the second wine you brought, but just tell me about the second wine you brought today. Well, I was talking about, you were mentioning, all the different vineyards around the world and things like that. Buying vineyards in, 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 in the best 
regions is quite expensive and quite difficult. You, you know, buy a hectare in Champagne, it costs a fortune, and Bordeaux the same. So there was a uh, a chap um, in Bordeaux who owns Canon Saint, um, who owns a uh, owns a Saint Emilion estate, uh, Canon Lagafelia, and he wanted to buy some more vineyards. He wanted to progress his business because obviously, you know, to grow your business, you've got to have more product, and having more product in in these areas is difficult, as I said. So he looked for places where you could get a, a good value vineyard that had the potential uh, to make great wine. And he came across Bulgaria. And as I was saying to you earlier, you know, when I, were, I remember you know, 30 years ago, you went to the supermarkets and Bulgarian Cabernet Sauvignon for 2 mm-hmm. It wasn't bad. But this is 15 So this is from Bulgaria. Uh, it's called Inira from the Bessa Valley. And it was, you, you talk about how you find wines. Well, this was alerted Jancis Robinson, who's a, a great, important person in the wine trade. You know, she was writing about it, saying that she tried this wine. Um, and so it wasn't me uh, touring around Bulgaria that found it. It, it, was, it, it was reading Jancis Robinson's yeah. uh, Purple Pages thing. So, you know, that, that helps. And it's a rich wine. It's made with Cabernet Sauvignon um, and, and syrup and some more grapes in it. It's 14.5% alcohol. A lot of people now, they look at the back of the labels, oh, God, 14.5%. You sort of can't taste the alcohol nowadays because they're so well-balanced, the wines. Um, but, you know, most wines do have more alcohol. It, it, is a, it, is a, a, it is an issue in the wine trade, the alcohol levels, mm. because as is global warming, they're getting more sunshine, more ripeness, better winemaking methods. But don't be frightened. But I just don't drink as much. No, <laughs> yeah. just three bottles, not yeah. four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So in era from Besson Valley, I think you'll enjoy yeah, that. Um, it goes well with steaks, full-bodied. So I think you know you ask about how to buy wines, alcohol, Bulgaria. Bulgaria is quite a warm uh, uh, climate, um, so it's going to be a fuller-bodied wine. But uh, you know that's one. You know, and there's wines now from Croatia and all over the place. And and. I'm looking here at a third bottle you brought, Cote de Rhone. Talk to me yeah. so about, about that bad boy. You can buy wines with the same name in France at all different levels. You can go to the the German supermarkets and buy it for like something 99 that's really quite cheap. Or you can go to a fine wine merchant like what we are and, and pay more. And you think, well, why do I have to pay more? Uh, because uh, this one's a Cote de Rhone from... Uh, Chateau de la Gardine, which is a Chateau Neuf de Pape producer, and they make uh, outstanding Chateau Neuf de Pape, uh, the Chateau of the New Pope, uh, so close to Avignon. And this is uh, their Cote de Rhone, so their sort of second wine after their other village wines. Um, And it's just got more structure and body and richness. Still good value. It's still only £10 a bottle, but it's just got a lot more about it. So point being is if you like Cote de Rhone, then then try some slightly better Cote de Rhone. Mm. If you spend another couple of quid, um, you should get something better. If, if to your palate, you don't, well, then stop and go back yeah, down to the other right, level. Yeah, but it's worth, it's worth trying it. So I just thought you might find those interesting, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Listen, thank you for bringing it. We're still on first bottle, folks, mm. so you'll be pleased to hear. Okay, so if, if, if I was thinking of calling it a day on law and, and, and opening a restaurant or getting into becoming a wine merchant... Where, where should I be going, where should I be travelling around the world to, to, to learn my trade? Well, I think wine, you've got to visit the vineyards, and, uh, and that's really important. And you've got to be in, in situ to get the feel. So that's why it's still important for us to go to vineyards. For you, 
uh, to experiment. I think the new world, as we arrogantly call it in Europe, um, you know, is great. South Africa is superb because you've got, uh, within an hour's drive of, of Cape Town, you've got the Stellenbosch region, Franschhoek, and then further north, there's some uh, interesting modern um, wineries. But they've all got, um, they've all got a hospitality side in different varieties. And some have got some really good restaurants. And they do wine and food matching. And when you go to these places, you know, you go to a restaurant sometimes and, and you ask what the specials are and somebody has to go to the kitchen and find out and get a bit of paper and read them out. You, know, you go to these places, they know them off the top of their head, they know how to make it, they know what wine it goes with, and obviously it's their wine. But that's really important. And then California do it as well, um, you know, as do Australia. So those sort of commercial uh, uh, winery visits are good to get an understanding of wine and matching it with food. And then the old world, if you go to Champagne for a start, for, uh, for example, you can go to the big houses, you can book a visit for 15 euros or whatever and go down into the chalk the chalk cellars of Reims or Reims as it's pronounced or Epinay and, and see the cellars, the Roman cellars that they dug out and where they store the Champagnes uh, as a big commercial. Or you can drive around the villages on the route to Champagne and every little Every tenth house has got a sign up saying uh, Vomp Direct, um, you know, and you can knock on the door and they'll take you down to the garden shed and you can taste some wine. Yeah. They prefer it if you buy something, so you've got to be careful. You don't just go, well, thanks very much, that was lovely. <laughs> I'm off now. Uh, you can do, obviously, but, yeah. you know, they do like a sale. And you can do that in lots of parts uh, of, of France. Italy is a, a very up-and-coming area. It's... It's been traditionally the largest producer of wine, and it's got so many different varietals. So I think that's an important place to visit and to to see the match of Italian wines and Italian foods. I think that's a very exciting area. Um, you know, obviously we're very uh, France-facing, and then Spain has got lots of different regions. Um, but I think a visit to Rioja is good, and San Sebastian to taste some of the things there. So I, th I think. You know, being in situ really helps and, you know, gets your, your knowledge levels up. Lovely. Well, um, anybody listening to this, Andrew, if they take nothing away, <laughs> they're either thirsty at the end of this, <laughs> uh, they'll take away that you know what you're on about. How, how can people get in contact with you if they've got queries about wines, etc.? Yeah, we'd be delighted. Uh, so uh, we've got a website, so it's firthandco.com. Um, we've got a Twitter, firthandco. We've got Instagram. Um and all our contact details are on the website. So I'd be delighted to have a chat, um, organise a tasting, you know, whatever you like, or just help. Yeah, lovely. Well, uh, obviously, thank you for coming. Thank you for uh, Pleasure. The, Glad you enjoyed uh, the wines. It. Yeah. I'm sorry, uh, I don't think uh, the listeners will want to hear us drinking three bottles of wine between us. Uh, we'll do that offline, as they say. But um, I hope you've enjoyed that. That's part two of our, um, I suppose, food and drink special. You'll have heard John Damoni's um, podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago I hope you enjoyed it I hope you've taken something from it certainly it's an industry that has been affected by what's gone on in the world but it's still here still going strong you're still going strong exactly yeah and, onwards uh, and upwards there's got to be bigger challenges before uh, we all stop drinking wine but uh, Andrew thanks for your time I really appreciate you coming pleasure thanks Chris